0: In our society, um, the area of sexuality—it's um, just multidimensional, and, and there's psychological dimensions and sociological dimensions, etc. And I don't want you to get your hopes up because, as if they introduced me, I'm a politics professor, so we t- we tend to take things that are innately good and kind of mess them up. So, you know, I. Uh, give a politics professor a chance to talk about sexuality. You could be in for a long night. Um, and you might wonder who, you know, who has the kind of death wish that they would want to go out and speak to um, the area of sexuality and culture and, and where we've come from and where we are and where we might be going. Who, who has that kind of, uh, who would do such a thing? And I'm, believe it or not, even though I'm a politics professor, I'm conflict-averse. And this was not my idea, one day waking up and saying my next way to be popular is to talk about sexuality. But I found myself in a situation where I didn't feel like I could dodge it. Um, I was the founder of something called the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College. For those of you that watch the West Wing and follow American politics, you'll know the New Hampshire primary is a big deal in politics and all the presidential candidates come to our college. We host the nationally televised debates every four years up in New Hampshire. And so being involved as a politics professor at St. Anselm with the New Hampshire primary was about as good a gig as you could get as a professor. And I was loving my life. I was loving being a talking head on in the news, uh, you name it, and the world changed. And one thing that changed in the world was that the Massachusetts Supreme Court issued a ruling many years ago now uh, legalizing same-sex marriage. And I'm not only a politics professor, I'm also an ordained minister. So not exactly the easiest combination and so the press who knew me from politics and also knew that I was a religious guy came to me and said well what do I think about that and my response was i'm not from massachusetts and i don't want to talk about it <laughs> cuz i'm smart enough to know that talking about stuff like that is a is a bad career choice really and Shortly thereafter, the Episcopal Church in New Hampshire, Gene Robinson, the first openly gay bishop in the worldwide Anglican community, and the press came back to me and said, well, what do you think about it? And I said, I'm not Episcopalian and I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> um, but I, I realized that as well as a politics professor, I can say no comment. As an ordained minister, I, I didn't feel like I could. So I stuck my neck out and went on a um, New Hampshire public radio uh, discussion one day with uh, Bishop Robinson on issues of marriage and other things, and basically it was a very unpleasant experience. Um, I explained what I thought, he explained what he thought, and people called into the show for an hour asking me why I was such a bigot, and I said, well, I'm not gonna do that again. And I realized that I, the world had changed since I was born in 1958 and that I didn't really have language to speak to the world in which I live what I believe to be true and that the world had changed so dramatically I needed to step back and think about think about it all. So I did, I took a step back and thought about it all and that's where the book Sex and the Eye World comes from. And what I want to share tonight is I definitely want to talk about these questions of sexuality, and whatever I don't get into that you have questions about, I'm happy to get into it during the Q&A. I I have no desire to dodge anything. Um, I'm already unpopular enough. What's a little bit more of unpopularity? Um, But I want to talk a little bit about the world in which we live in, and I want to address the question about whether this world that we presently live in, a world that I think is, would be properly characterized as pretty individualistic, is it a world that's sustainable? And I don't think it is. And I'll explain why. And in th- thinking about it, I want to talk about sexuality. I want to talk about identity. I want to talk about the issues of the day. And then I want to explain um, an option that I think is attractive. It's not just attractive to me. I think it's attractive to human beings. And I think it's worth considering. And I want to lay it out for your consideration. So that's where I intend to go. And you'll see me drinking water more than a little bit. It's not uh, for effect. Uh, I had thyroid cancer several years ago and in the course of my treatments, I lost the vocal cord. And you may say, well, how can one speak without a vocal cord? And fortunately, there was a physician at Dartmouth University that fashioned me an artificial vocal cord out of Gore-Tex. And so because of that, I am able to speak. And I, but I need to drink a lot of water, so that's, that's why I'm doing it. said I was born in 1958, um, born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For those of you that watch Nickelodeon and watch shows like Leave it to Beaver, that was kind of my childhood. And it was a different, it was a different time. I don't remember us ever locking our house until I was a teenager. I don't remember us locking our house when we went on vacation. Um, in my high school years, I don't recall that there was any. I didn't know anybody in my high school that was part of a divorced family. In Minneapolis at that time, on a Sunday, virtually everybody went to church. It was just a really different, a really different place. And that world that I grew up in, in a certain sense, doesn't exist. And, anymore, and it's okay. There were things about that world that weren't so great. But we now live in a world that's really different, not just technologically, but really different in terms of the way we view the world. We live in a world that has become extremely individualistic. It's something that I dub and call the I-world. Kind of the old world that i came from whether it was jewish or christianity or islam whether it was greek or roman philosophy it was a world that was heavy on relationship big on family big on marriage big on neighborhood big on community it was a world democracy it was a world that wasn't perfect it was There was a lot of uh, bad stuff that went on, bad stuff that went on behind closed doors in homes and families, et cetera. So by no means was it a perfect world, but the ethic of that world was heavily into relationship. And it was a world that had an ethic on sexuality that said sexual relations should be confined to a marriage between a man and a woman. And again, it wasn't that everybody lived that way, but it was kind of the prevailing ethic. And it was a prevailing ethic regardless of your religious persuasion. It was a prevailing ethic regardless of philosophical persuasions to some degree. And that world, that world is no longer with us. And something changed and we could point to lots of different reasons and because I'm a professor and I could go on and on and on and on, I'll just suffice it to say that we'll just let the 60s be our, 60s be our case. The 60s changed a lot of things. That at the universities, we kind of jettisoned the idea that there was one way of thinking morally, um, that there was one way of thinking in terms of, say, Western civilization or one way of thinking about it religiously, and we became a place that rather than saying that there was such a thing as, as truth with a big T, um, we began to embrace the idea that every individual needed to find truth for themselves. That in the... Um, The era of modernity, the era of modern science, mathematics. Modernity kind of replaced the theology and philosophy of the ancient world and the medieval world. And modernity came along and said, there were so many things that the ancients got wrong when it came to cosmology and the universe. What else did they get wrong? There were so many things that the church got wrong when it came to theology. What else did it get wrong? And the hope was in moral philosophy that science would do for morality what it was doing for our understanding of the natural world. That would help us to understand that which is true morally. But as modernity kind of inched along, we came to a place in modernity where David Hume, among others, kind of pointed out that science wasn't going to be able to be the final say when it came to morality. He spoke of it in terms of the is-ought dilemma. You can't derive an ought from an is. We can make a nuclear bomb, but that doesn't tell us whether, if ever, we should use it. Science can teach us all sorts of things about what is. Just because something is doesn't mean that you can figure out what you ought to do. That science, mathematics doesn't solve the moral conundrum. And we transition in morality to a postmodern world. And in this postmodern world, it's not a world of religion, it's not a world of, of ancient philosophy, it's not a world of science and mathematics positivism it's a world that says truth is each and every individual needs to figure it out for themselves for ourselves it's what it is it's not good or bad it's simply what it is and in this I world that we live in it's we no longer live in the world that I grew up in the world of the Ten Commandments We live in a world, I'd say, that has three, and I would call them taboos. The first command, or the first taboo, you can do whatever it is that you want so long as you don't hurt anybody. The second taboo, you can do what you want with other people so long as it's consensual. And third, don't judge anybody else's life choices. I think we live in a world in which those are the three laws of getting along. Do what you want, don't cause harm. Do what you want, so long sensual. Don't judge. And As time has gone on, what we've begun to find is that the old way that the world argued, the the traditional world argued that we ought to structure our lives morally or relationally has changed pretty dramatically. And that individuals are now not just given the freedom, but given the responsibility to um, figure out who they are figure out how they want to live, and are given the freedom to live as they wish so long as they don't violate any of the taboos. And that in the world in which we live, marriage is changing, relationships are changing, sexual ethics have changed, and that in the world we live, any number of potential couplings is possible, so long as it doesn't violate the taboos. It's the case that the very face of marriage is changing. I may have gotten brought into this particular subject when the Massachusetts Supreme Court changed its law about same-sex marriage, but The laws about marriage um, and the laws connected to what counts for a marriage isn't going to stop with the question of same-sex marriage, and it certainly won't stop there. There's a case winding its way through the court system that deals with polygamy in Montana. So it will find its way to the court, and I'll be really surprised if polygamy isn't found to be legal. Why shouldn't more than two... People who wish to be married, be married if they wish to be married. As long as they're not hurting anyone and as long as it's consensual, what's what's the problem? The Netherlands has made moves toward that end recently. Um, The Swiss um, government has been um, debating for the last couple of years about whether to allow um, siblings to marry. And... In one level, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what reaction that, that brings to you, but in the world in which we live, in this, this post-60s world, we've pretty successfully separated um, reproduction from the sexual act. We pretty much, we've pretty much released, in a certain sense, we've made sex just sex. And separated it from it, and so the idea is if siblings want to, to marry, that's a separate question from whether siblings should have children, and it's something we ought to be able to keep separate. Now again, I I come to you on the West Coast, I'm from the Northeast, so it's not like I come from some bastion of conservatism in mid-America, so but it's you no, know, the world is changing, and the, in Germany, um, they're trying. They're having a debate about whether they should outlaw bestiality because they've got some German animal brothels, and some people don't like it, and other people do. And you can see the debate, and the debate is about consent, and the debate is about. Can animals give consent and you may say I I knew if a politics professor was doing this thing it would be a drag. (laughs) You could say well people like me get up and they say things and then they bring up lots of different examples or kind of examples beyond the pale and as a way of making narrower points, and actually that's not my intention. My intention is saying that we live in a world that is, works on an ethic that's very individualistic, and with every passing year, um, that old Doobie Brothers album cover, again, I date myself, I'm 58, so I'm way older than any of you. You what were once vices are now habits was the name of the album cover. And things that we used to think were beyond the pale aren't necessarily beyond the pale. And we live in an in one level, we live in a very sexual society. The 60s bequeathed us a lot of things, and one of the things that bequeathed us was the idea that you should be able to love the one you're with. That if you, there's nothing to be ashamed of when it comes to having a sexual relationship with another human being. And if you want to have that relationship and you both are interested in having the relationship, there's nothing that should stop you from having the relationship. And that, you know, marriage shouldn't necessarily stop you as long as you don't break the taboos and. As long as there's consent and as long as you don't hurt somebody. There's the open marriage. You name it. There's, it's complicated. So we live in a society in which the, the very nature of how we're thinking about sexuality and relationship and freedom is, is changing really significantly and really rapidly. And... A question I want to ask, and the question that, in one sense, is drives my my presentation tonight, is: is this project particular trajectory we are on is it sustainable? I suppose another way you could say is it a good idea, but that's probably that's not exactly the point I want to make. Is this will this particular trajectory work? Is the individualistic trajectory that we're on, is it one that is socially sustainable? Is it sustainable for our lives? Is it sustainable for ourselves? And my argument is that it's not. And I want to explain why I think that. First, want to think about it economically we live in a society now in which it's the case that either um, young people are delaying marriage longer than ever but they will get married or we've come to a place in our society in which a majority of Americans will never marry I am not suggesting that there's something about this individualistic world that we live in that is antithetical to marriage or anti-marriage. I don't find it to be that case at all. In fact, um, I think we live as about as romantic a time when it comes to marriage as ever. We've expanded the definition of marriage, but it's not that it's not it's not talked about in pretty romantic terms by a lot of different people. What's also the case is the numbers are telling us is that it's, it's fewer and fewer Americans believe that they will be able to be in a lifelong relationship with another human being that is healthy and sustainable for life. That it's more and more the case when Americans are asked about the future and their future relationships that they ex- hope to be able to be into, into th- about three or four relationships during their lifetime that will sustain them. That they don't expect to find one forever or till death do us part, but that they hope they can find a couple of people along the way that can be there for them in an intimate relationship along the way. And so it's not the case that it's necessarily the case that people aren't going to get married or now look down on marriage, but there are fewer people that believe in marriage if marriage is defined as kind of a lifelong relationship with another human being. That particular way of viewing marriage is in decline. Now, is there a problem with that? On one level, no, on one level, no, but economically, there is something that governments are struggling with that connects directly to this, and it's this. It costs a government between four and eight times more money to care for children born outside of a marriage than in a marriage. Now, that you might, for a social scientist, I've made a really v- vague statement, four to eight times more. So why, why is that so vague? We have a pretty good idea what it costs a society for a child born outside of marriage when they're a child. And I'm not suggesting that every child born outside of marriage costs society money, and I'm not trying to suggest that children born in marriage, that there's not exceptions, etc. I'm not, not trying to make that case. The problem is, what we're finding is, is that if a child is not taken care of by their biological parents when they're a child, the child doesn't take care of their, his or her biological parents when the biological parents become elderly. 48% of American kids are born outside of marriage, so we haven't hit 50% yet. But the challenge is, finding is, is that of those 48% of kids born outside of marriage, a majority of them have five parental figures between the time they're born and they they become 18. And the statistics are telling us that when their biological parents age, they're not likely to take care of them. That's, that's the expense. The cost to our government to take care of um, elder, the elderly is so it's so expensive that family taking care of elderly is one of the best bargains there is. And the question is: can we financially sustain ourselves as a country? if this trajectory continues. The German government has said no. And it's not because the German government got religion or something like that. It's because the Germans are just really good at economics. And what they... A recent court case said that there was a child that didn't take care of his father Um, even though his father took care of him when he was a kid, and so therefore the child owed the German government almost 8,000 euros a year in tax in order to compensate the government for taking care of the parent. And it's because they recognize that they can't continue with this trajectory. It's not something that has come to roost today, This is something that works itself out demographically. But the question that governments are struggling with around the world is can we sustain, can we find a way to make our economies work without family? And the answer to the question is we haven't figured it out yet. The Marxists weren't the first who um, spoke of uh, different, you know, Spoke critically of family but the question is how are we going to replace it and the Australian government the UK government the South African government the Europeans are all recognizing that they don't know how to afford a world without marriage they don't know how to afford a world that works without it and they're trying to figure out how to get that genie back in the bottle for them it's not an issue of sexual ethics it's not an issue of of um it's not an issue of going back to uh, the old definition of marriage it's not an issue of i mean same-sex marriage is fine those things are fine the question is how can we get human beings to get married to stay married to have families to stay connected and to take care of each other cradle to grave how can we get that back And when I was talking about the eye world not working, the eye world, the world that we're presently in not being sustainable, economics is one of the reasons why I don't think it's sustainable. Now this, how you say, well, I thought this was supposed to be about sex. So let's talk about sex. I'm about to put forward an argument that I have never given to put forward in in an audience before, so I think it's a good one, but I will find out. (laughs) I am increasingly persuaded that the trajectory of the, the sexual trajectory that we are on in the world that we are presently in Is also unsustainable and the trajectory we are on is leading us to the end of sexuality. Now this may seem counterintuitive because if anything we are the most sexually liberated uh, group in in history that I'm aware of. I don't know of a group that's more a country or a society that's more sexually liberated than we are. So, in one sense, you would say, and I know that it's said, that when it comes to sexuality, the world we presently live in is good news for sex. I, I don't think so. And here's why. Pornography. Now, you may say, I knew it. You know, they're going, to, they're going to talk about sex, and they're going to talk about porn, and blah, blah, blah. And I've heard it all before, and he's going to say, porn is bad. No, I'm, here's what I'm saying. We're finding something among our college students that is, uh, things are changing in terms of sexual behavior on our campus. The college students are having less sex now than they did five years ago. And it's the case that uh, the high school, high school students are having less sex now than they did a while back. When they're interviewed and asked about this, um, it's not because they all of a sudden got a hold of abstinence education or something like that. No, what they report is, is that from middle school on, they were exposed to so much hardcore pornography and then experimentation that by the time they get to be seniors in high school, they're starting to be bored with it. And same true in same's true in college. So we're finding that there's a tick, that the the hookup culture on our campus is dialed back. But it's not because, again, it's not because of abstinence, it's because that, that The hookup got started much earlier, and kind of been there, done that. So what's my thesis? What's my point? My belief is, is that um, pornography, the experimentation, the sexualization of our youth, that we've That we're not only permitting but encouraging is ultimately going to undermine sexuality in our culture and what i mean by that is it was the case that they invented viagra and cialis and those drugs for people my age but the growth industry for those drugs are increasingly for men in their 30s and going down. And it's my sense that what's going on in our culture is that pornography is so pervasive, and it's been so pervasive um, so young that there's been so much activity and so much stimulation, et cetera, that um, we are are moving to a place where it's going to be increasingly difficult for people to have a sexual relationship with another human being. And I would only add to this that I can see the future if the if, you know, and you just think of the uptick of technology going from magazines to HD, virtual reality or non-virtual reality, whatever the, you can just see the uptick and then you've got the advances in robotics what human being can compete with what you imagine which with what is literally beyond your imagination i mean we're at least I mean, it's, I mean like this is where if this is recorded i could get quoted and it would be bad but in a certain sense at least you could you might look back on the days and say well there was something to be said for pornography because it because there was human beings involved in your fantasies, but it's easy to see that we could blend human beings be involved in that whole aspect of it. If it's virtual reality, if it's robotics, I simply ask the question, and my observation is: I think we're moving to a world of barrenness, and story at our college is that more and more um, of our college women are addicted to porn we're starting to see an uptick of male anorexia and so I think that what I'm beginning to observe is more and more objectification of other human beings which means that no other human being can live up to the images that are out there and who can compete with that and is there any, how do you dial this back and enter into a human relationship, let alone a sexual relationship? Or is the logical conclusion of this I world, I sex? And so I, my contention is, is that the logical conclusion of the world we're in is not just economically unsustainable, but I also think so that, it's, that it's sexually not sustainable. I think we're going to find ourselves in a society that has a hard time having sexual relationships. Third thesis has to do with identity. When I was in college, I was I asked my professor, I was in a psych class in 1977, I said, I don't know what to write on. What should I write on? My psych professor said you should write on homosexuality. So I said, okay, I'll do that. And I had to go to the dictionary and look it up. I had never heard the word before. I'm just now, that could be me. Could be Minneapolis. Could be I played too much ice hockey. I don't know. <laughs> but. <clears throat> I asked my professor later why he had me do that. He said, because it'll become important in your lifetime. We've, more than a few years ago, when we talked about gay rights and would there be gay rights and could we have gay rights, would we get there? I remember talking to Andrew Sullivan, one of the champions of gay rights. And I remember him telling me that he thought we'd get gay rights, but it would, he didn't think we'd get same-sex marriage, and he was wrong about that. I think a lot of people were wrong about that. But we're not just talking about gay rights now. we're talking about new wonder ways of understanding gender. we're talking about new ways of understanding identity. we're talking about ways of understanding identity where it's hard to keep up with the acronyms because there's new acronyms being added because the, the, the expansion of identity is really significant. I would say eight to 10 years ago when students would come to my office and if they would um, wanna let me know that they were coming out, they'd be coming out as gay or lesbian. I would say over the past two or three years, it it's never as gay or lesbian, but it would be um, gay plus this, this, and this, or lesbian plus this, this, and this. That um, it's it was it's not enough presently to to just adopt kind of a generic identity, but to have a tailored identity that that that's more specific to you as an individual. And so the idea of identity is it's while it's expanding significantly. So what's my point? Rousseau, a French philosopher, made an argument in one of his books that, that in order to, for a human being to understand themselves, they needed to look within. And then looking within, that was how you could figure out who you were, And that then um, what we needed to do is seek to live in a life that was authentic to what we found when looking within. His philosophic contemporaries um, shouted him down. They shouted Rousseau down not because of any religious concerns about anything he said or that they said. But they shouted him down because they said it wasn't true. And what, they, what their point was is that no human being can understand who they are without a reference point outside of themselves. One of the debates, um, philosophical debates about identity, has boiled back to this debate between Rousseau and his contemporaries. Is it the case that if, in order to figure out who we are, that each of us have to look within? And then in looking within, when we get to know ourselves and we get to know um, our desires, we get to know our sexual desires, we get to know um, as much as we can about ourselves individually, is it the case that that's when we figure out who we are? Or is it the case that um, it actually isn't possible? that the way in which we figure out who we are is from our reference point. And it's my belief that um, we we only know who we are by reference points outside of ourselves. I was persuaded of this by an eighth eighth grade girl at my um, church. She came to me one day and she said, Pastor Dale, I want you to know I'm a horse. And, you know, there's a lot of things they didn't teach me in seminary. <laughs> and I've had more than a few moments where I, I, I'd gotten myself in such, situ- I, I didn't know what to say. So the next week I said, you know, I'm really glad you told me. And I, I just wanted to find out how did you figure this out? So she says, "Well, Pastor Dale, what does it feel like to be a man?" And I said," "Hmm, I know what it feels like to be me, but I don't know what it feels like to be somebody else. I don't know, I don't know what it feels like to be a man." She says, "Well, Pastor Dale, what does it feel like to be a woman?" I said, I've asked myself that question. <laughs> to it, but I said, you know, I don't know. To which she said, exactly. And in conversation, she says, why the school tells me that I'm supposed to look within to figure out who I am. And The school assumes that I'm going to be some combination or derivation of male-female, but why? The species that I identify most, most with are horses. Now, theologically, I would say that Every human being that walks the earth is made in the image of God. And so for me, that is where I go to to anchor my thinking about identity. But philosophically, I agree with Rousseau's contemporaries who said, The question is, what is our reference point going to be? And for some of us, it's politics, ideology. For some of us, it's parents, people we respect, people that we know, painful things that happen to us. Lots of different things can define us. My point is, I think the I world doesn't work economically. I don't think it's sustainable. Sexually, I think it leads us toward the end of sexuality. And I think it's a, it leads us to a dead end in identity. I think what it will do if it allows to continue is is that we will continue to expand the acronyms of identity so extensively that we that we will just it it just runs aground. I also believe that the logical conclusion of identity if it's looking within because Basically, if if we have to look within to figure out who we are, then in a certain sense we're, we're, um, we're exiled to loneliness. And we're exiled to loneliness because we're saying nobody else can ever know who we are. Nobody else can tell me who I am because nobody else can know me. I'm the only one that can know me because I'm the one that has to look within. It's a very solitary process. I think the logical conclusion of this direction of identity is loneliness. So what do I believe the future is? I believe the future, I believe we have to step back and say that our future as human beings is one that is relational. It's not a religious statement to say human beings are made to live relationally. It could be a religious statement, but I don't think that is. I think for all the reasons I've just explained, regardless of whether we got to where we are by evolution or who knows what, there is a way the world works. There is a physics to human life just as there is physics to the gravity and things like that. You can tell I'm not scientific. (laughs) And the physics are that we're made for relationship. We're made for relationship with other human beings. None of us can live by ourselves. None of us can live separate from each other. The reality is that we need each other. I would say that a show like Modern Family is a show that is reinforces the fact that we literally can't conceive of ourselves without family. And if we redefine the meaning of family and I'm okay because I think it points out that we recognize we need family. I think it recognizes that we need friendship, that we need other people, that we need to take somebody to take care of us when we just come into this world, and we need somebody to take care of us when we leave this world, and we need people in between. Maybe not as much and maybe not all the time, but we do. That the society we has, that we have doesn't work. If it falls apart relationally. And what I observe from my study of human history is is that there are societies that end up declining and fading away and no longer existing all of Rome. And Rome falls apart, and we wake the next day, and what do we find? Human beings discover each other again. Human beings are in families again. Human beings are in communities again. We fight. Bad things happen, and what do we find? We still need each other. We still need each other. We're still connected to each other. Relationships matter. Sexuality matters. I think that ultimately sex was made for relationship. I think relationships matter. I think sexuality matters, but I think it's to be practiced in a relational context. And I would say that the crisis of our day is not that we're not permissive enough. I would say the crisis of our day is that we're losing relational hope as a people. That fewer and fewer people aspire to relationship. The New York Times reported that of people over the age of 50 who aren't presently in a marriage, um, 80% of them don't want to be with another person the rest of their lives. So it's not a millennial thing I'm talking about it, it cuts across the board in lots of different ways but I think we live in a time where we're losing relational hope let me give let me wrap up by giving one explanation and then we can open up to questions actually talk about sexuality which is probably what you want to talk about M. Scott Peck, Harvard psychologist, passed away a few years ago. Developed a taxonomy of relationships, his description of how relationships unfold. He says the phase one in a relationship is uh, people encounter each other and they uh, make themselves each of they make themselves out to be better than they are in order to try to attract another. Phase two in the relationship is that the person, the people try to change the other person to fit with their image of what they want the person to be. Stage three, people don't like that. So they have fight. Stage four, it develops into nuclear meltdown. Stage five, nuclear winter. Peck says every human relationship will go from the beginning to nuclear winter, every human relationship. And that's true of business, churches, You name it. Peck says that nuclear winter is a prerequisite for a real relationship. Meaning, nuclear winter is when you have the opportunity to get to know the other person for who they are, and for them to get to know you for who you are, And for the first time, develop a relationship with a real person without an agenda. And you have the other person do the same for you. And Peck says that what his experience as a psychologist was, was that people would increasingly get to nuclear winter and assume there was no future And so then they'd go and start over again. And then every relationship they'd have would cycle. Nuclear winter, start over, nuclear winter, start over. And that the tragedy was that people never figured out what it meant to have true relationship. But the true relationship was built out of nuclear winter, which is people now developing a relationship with somebody that's real. And that is what he said is why relational hope is so crucial. Because the only thing that can get you through nuclear winter is hope. This is a lecture about sexuality. And my problem with our day is it's not all the sexual variation. I think we're living in a I think we are living in a day in which we're losing it, sexuality. And that the foundation of sexuality is not orgasm. The foundation of sexuality is relational, that it's about the relationship and that my problem with the the I world, the world that we presently inhabit, the world that is giving us all sorts of um, uh, instruction about identity and additional identities and permissiveness, etc., my objection to this world is not that there's something evil about it. My objection to this world is that it doesn't work. And that I think that to save sex, we need to recover relationship. To save our identity, we need to begin to contemplate what are the reference points we're going to have in our lives. And I need to begin to learn and figure out once again, what does it mean to love another person? The NLA Miz, the Broadway, West West End, they sing, to love another person is to see the face of God. I believe that I want to move us into a more relational world and out of this world of individualism because I think we need to recover love and because I want us to find sex again because I want us to find who we are again. Thanks.